I'm Listening is Odyssey's commitment to mental health conversations. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, depression, anxiety, or mental illness, help is available. Call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. That's 988. We cornered one suspect and we tried to negotiate for several hours. Uh, negotiations broke down. We had an exchange of gunfire with the suspect. That's former Dallas Police Chief David Brown speaking at a press conference on July 8, 2016, just hours after a shooting downtown that killed five police officers. Uh, we saw no other option but to use our bomb, bomb robot and place a device on the, its extension uh, for it to detonate where the suspect was. The suspect was at El Centro College and engaged in an hours-long standoff with Dallas police. Other options would have exposed our officers to grave danger. Uh, the suspect is deceased as a result of de detonating the bomb. According to reports after the event, it marked the first time explosives attached to a robot had been used by a U.S. police department. But not every instance is as extreme as using a robot carrying a bomb to end a standoff. Just like in every industry, technology is impacting the way law enforcement does its job. From things we're familiar with, like body cameras and license plate readers, to newer things like artificial intelligence, tech is always evolving. I'm Chris Blake, and Texas wants to know, how is technology changing the way police do their jobs? I started back in uh, 1985 at Northwestern Hills, and uh, I was uh, made a traffic officer pretty early on, and then I spent about seven years as a detective. In about 1997, I started going up the uh, chain of command with sergeant through assistant chief. Police Chief Mike Young heads the department in North Richland Hills, a suburb northeast of Fort Worth. Served as an assistant chief for about 10 years and then was asked to serve as the chief here this last June. So it's an, it's an honor to be here and it's an honor to uh, serve with the men and women of the North Richland Hills Police Department, I can assure you. Could you have imagined in 1985 what kind of technological tools would be available to law enforcement nearly 40 years later? I would have to tell you that no, that was not on our mindset back in that day. You know, everything was really done mostly by through investigative means. You talk to people, you look for evidence, you recorded evidence, and then and then you made the cases that you could make based on what you had. A little more advanced now than it was when you started. Yes, sir. I would say quite a bit more advanced. Young is one of two police chiefs I talked to for this episode, along with a representative from the ACLU. The first thing I asked each of them was which tech tools were becoming more prevalent in policing, putting aside things like cameras that have been commonplace for years. The answer? Drones. We spend our time using our drone program more so to help us whenever we have major incidents. And so, and it, and it works fantastic for those kind of things. Chief Albert Garcia is the head of the Leveland Police Department and the president of the Texas Police Chiefs Association. Leveland is a town of about 15,000, 30 miles west of Lubbock. 
So a lot of the smaller, more rural agencies are using it for that kind of uh, infrastructure or that kind of infrastructure to help them. Uh, larger cities are actually using them for patrol. They're they're setting pods up in different sectors of their communities, and uh, dispatch services are actually able to launch those drones from their dispatch centers and actually start the patrol process before the patrolmen even get there so that they can give the officers advance notice on what kind of uh, situations they may be going into, which is really cool. But Savannah Kumar, a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union of Texas, says the use of drones can raise concerns too. There are these new programs that we've called, you know, eye in the sky policing um, or drone drones as first responder programs, which involve sending unpiloted aerial vehicles to the location of when there's a, a call to 911, sending a drone over there first, but also being able to just send those drones to anywhere in a community unpiloted. She mentioned another kind of technology that piqued our interest in this topic to begin with. At News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, where I work, we get email alerts almost nightly that say, quote, gunshots detected in one North Texas city. It made us wonder why we were getting alerts of just gunshots, but not shootings. There's a program, Shot Spotter is one example of this, um, that identifies or tries to identify when there is noise that resembles a, a gunshot, but really involves live microphones picking up sounds and noises um, in communities as well. And again, the concern with both of these types of technologies and so many other police surveillance type of technologies is just the ways that, that, that even if they're trying to collect a particular type of information, we see that in that process, they collect massive amounts of information and they can get it wrong as well in terms of getting wrong even if you're looking for a, a gunshot, for example, there may be other types of noises that are picked up in that and can really influence who is being policed and how. As technologies continue to develop, that question of privacy is central to this story and many others about how present we want tech to be in our lives. Kumar says more clarity around how police departments use technology would go a long way. One thing that makes it really difficult is that many of these technologies are emerging and the programs in which they're launched by police departments are often quite non-transparent about the, the ways that these surveillance technologies are being used, the amount of information that is being captured, and then even just basic questions about where the data is being stored, how long it's being retained, who it can be shared with, and, and how it's really being used. And so it's really hard to answer that question of, you know, when is it appropriate to use, um, when those preliminary questions are often not answered, and even understanding how various surveillance technologies are interacting with one another. But the police chiefs I talked to say citizens' privacy is something they take into account. What do you think is the, the line that law enforcement has to walk to balance keeping communities safe while also allowing citizens a certain level of privacy. And that's always a question that we ask ourselves. You know, I know that uh, there's probably a ton of citizens out there that feel like, you know, well, the uh, police just uh, automatically infringe on our rights and things like that. But we're always very um, conscious of what we're doing with our specific drones. As a matter of fact, even our legislators today are looking at different types of legislation to see if whether or not uh, laws need to be imposed 
that maybe restrict our use on drones over uh, specific things like private property, over fence lines, those kind of things like that. It can be hard for legislator legislatures um, to stay ahead of trends and technology in general, and that's an area of the law where we see that um, the law itself is often well behind how quickly technology is spreading. But, you know, it, it can be so important to just have those basic requirements enshrined. I mean, of course, again, the Constitution provides us with some of these guarantees, but really having that spelled out more concretely in terms of limitations, for example, on how technologies can be used. And as I mentioned earlier, having policies in place for retention, um, limiting how long information is held once it's captured and how it's shared, et cetera. But the really the first place to start with that is the limitation, a limitation on the expansion of surveillance technologies. I would think finding the balance between the safety and privacy thing is probably something that's kind of been a moving target over the years, right? It has. As you go through the media today, you see a lot of where the facial recognition on the cameras is is outlawed in some states, is legal in other states. And so there is a lot of controversy on on whether law enforcement should be allowed those those tools or not. And so that's why that's what the public has got to ask themselves is does a person that has, say, a warrant for their arrest or, or we're looking for uh, somebody leaving a football game or something like that and they've committed a, a felony assault, should law enforcement be allowed to use that type of technology to be able to apprehend that suspect? Because otherwise, without it, you may never you may never catch them. And so that is what the public has got to, to figure out as to whether they endorse the usage of that or whether they don't. And ultimately, the courts will help decide on what what is possible, what is not possible. Young came armed, figuratively, to our Zoom discussion with more examples of new technology and its practical uses than I could have asked for. Take the story of North Richland Hills Police Captain Jeff Garner, who was injured in a shooting 21 years ago. We had an officer shot back in the early 2000s. There was a mystery. We didn't know. He stopped somebody that was uh, robbing a bank uh, in a nearby city. Didn't have any idea that that's what he was doing. Today, we would know that, uh, that the nearby city had a bank robbery instantly on the radio. Back then, we didn't know. He stops him, and the guy comes out shooting, ends up shooting our officer, becomes a whodunit uh, for many years. But the individual had robbed several banks in our area, was out of Oklahoma, but he did have DNA at some of the other locations. So we took that DNA, and the DNA has taken a, a whole new realm of its abilities to be able to be used. And we literally located that subject uh, some 10 years later in Oklahoma and was able to solve that case. In the spring of 2022, the man linked to the case, Mark Allen Long, was found dead near an Oklahoma City cell phone tower. Police say they believe he killed himself as authorities prepared to arrest him. Young had more stories to offer, this one involving technology that can help authorities find vehicles they're looking for. 
a company called Flock is basically as a, as a vehicle passes a certain intersection where, where a camera is, is mounted, it, it takes the information on that vehicle down. And that that has been probably one of the bigger game changers for law enforcement that I've seen in the last few years. It will alert officers if there's somebody that goes through there that has a stolen vehicle or a stolen plate or they're wanted. Uh, it gives them the opportunity to know that that vehicle's in the area and that gives them uh, gives them something to look for. We had a murder case that happened about the 8500 block of Harwood. If you're familiar with the DFW area, that's in North Richland Hills, just north of the 121-820 split, not far from Northeast Mall. And the individual had shot, I shot another person, and we were able to take flock, and we were we, we had a description of the of the suspect, we had a description of the vehicle, not a license plate. But we were able to take that description and feed it into that flock system and go, okay, yes, that vehicle was seen in the area the day before. It's seen in the in the area the day of the murder. And it is also located up in the city north of us where they got into a uh, altercation and a shootout with that individual. So if you're looking for someone in connection to a crime of some sort, it's getting much harder to hide from law enforcement. Well, we are getting a lot more tools uh, with which to discover criminal activity. And, and so we get we get report of a criminal activity. We get what we get on the information. We may get a partial license plate. We may get a description of a vehicle. We may get a, a description of a person. And we take that information and we put it into our the resources that we have and see if there is a match. That doesn't mean that we automatically have a case made. That just means that we've got a place to go and look and see if that information actually pans out to be the person that actually did the crime. Another type of technology I was curious to ask Young and Garcia about was artificial intelligence. It's impacting just about every industry in the world, including this one, writing scripts and even voicing podcasts. For all you know, you could be listening to artificial intelligence at this very moment. Artificial intelligence, uh, it's, it's an interesting concept and it is one that is, it is certainly a growth industry. You needn't go far to a uh, police conference where the uh, vendors are set up and you will see literally a myriad of different ideas that companies have come up with as the latest and greatest thing that you as a law enforcement organization need to have to be able to solve crime or, or any number of other things. There's so many different things with artificial intelligence and how certain things are being monitored or those kind of things, you know, there's different programs in the industry now that we can uh, run target words through and it'll run it through a computer uh, database system for us uh, to try to find those specific literature. And when we find it, then we're able to tag it and and, uh, start doing some type of background investigation to see if it's a legitimate kind of issue. We are currently testing a thing called uh, Clearview AI. That is a very interesting piece of technology in the fact that it take it can take a picture, take a picture of you or me, and it will tell you across the public databases or police uh, shared police files where our picture might be located. So kind of like an, an image search on steroids. It is certainly a, a valuable tool for law enforcement because otherwise, a lot of times, otherwise, without information like this, crimes will end up going unsolved. AI in, in many different spaces is completely changing the landscape of how 
operations are carried out. And in the policing space, AI is enhancing already sophisticated police technology and, and you know, potentially enhancing already very crisp camera uh, footage, for example, as well, and adding this especially Orwellian layer to it um, by allowing machines to look out for connections and patterns based on potentially biased information from the past, and then using that to make predictions about the future as well, and directing police resources towards those predictions. And so, again, what that means is that first, like AI in technology, we can anticipate that like other surveillance technologies that have first been piloted and tested on communities of color and poor communities and on immigrant communities, that that same type of process is a concern with the use of AI. And then also just the ways that it can lead police to situations that are invented by AI itself rather than um, places where there's really a concern at all. And so kind of inventing a problem and then directing police resources to a, a particular geographic location, for example, and then causing even more problems because of that. Have you guys seen examples where there's been non-incidents that police have been directed to? So um, in terms of what I just mentioned, this is a concern generally with AI. Um, I can't speak to, again, because I can't really speak to what individual police departments are doing and how they're using that technology, but that's certainly a concern in terms of how this technology can be rolled out and used. As AI comes into play, along with other tools we may not yet have heard of, Garcia says they are constantly reevaluating what tools to use and how to deploy them. I'll be honest with you, a lot of times when we're having those kind of discussions and we're having those kind of, of educational moments, it's usually because we've noticed or found another state has already violated that. When we see something that maybe didn't look right or wasn't appropriate, we automatically start looking at how, is that something that could happen or is there a law that's already in place that maybe they would have violated here in the state of Texas? If not, what do we need to do to make sure that we don't fall down that same pit hole? And so, uh, so those are the kind of teaching moments that we like to use for our association and across the state of Texas, actually, because we'll have uh, chiefs from across the state, but we also have their second in commands and other officers that will attend this, this same conference. Talking about chiefs and higher ups in general, how has technology affected the way that you guys are able to review incidents, good or bad, either way, just it's gotta be helpful there to where you have a firsthand account of it as opposed to getting secondhand information. Sure, absolutely. You know, we are able more so now than ever before because of the uh, software infrastructures that we have, because of the computers that we have, they're uh, even operating out in the field. We have the ability to be able to get data directly out of databases, whether they be local databases or state databases, uh, almost in a live mode. And when we're able to get that kind of information and share it with one another, then it makes us uh, more responsive and better at what we're doing to ensure that we don't go down those, again, like we talked about earlier, go down those pitfalls where maybe we needed some information and we can't wait on that information. Well, now we can receive that information a whole lot quicker. Being able to share information is becoming more and more important because departments around the state and the nation, for that matter, are facing staffing shortages. In March, Texas state troopers helped Austin police with patrols due to a shortage, according to the Texas Tribune. 
And in the last legislative session, lawmakers introduced a bill that would make legal permanent residents eligible to apply for police officer jobs in Texas. The bill died in the House. I know you can't necessarily make up for a body on the street with technology, but does it help bridge the gap at all? Well, uh, that's kind of a double-edged sword. And first of all, staffing issues are happening across the entire nation, but specifically for us in the state of Texas, without a doubt, it, it's been very difficult to try to fill all the roles that we have available within all the police departments across the state of Texas. Now, in regards to your question, it can be useful for especially um, our younger generation. Let's take it uh, in case uh, taking accidents, for instance, if you have a minor accident, maybe a parking lot accident or maybe a minor accident on the street that really didn't cause too much damage to your vehicles. No one is injured, those kind of things like that. There are certain cities now where you can actually call the police department and, and press one for whatever uh, kind of report you want to file. and you go through a system that says if you want to file an accident report, press this number, and it'll take you through the process to file an accident report. So some of our younger generation really appreciate that because they're, they're, they're more versed in how to use that kind of technology than some of our older generation. In our older generation, they really appreciate more of the officer presence and being able to go and, and make that contact with them. So it's, again, it's kind of a double-edged sword, in my uh, opinion. Staffing shortages are often cited for a reason to increase police surveillance technology, and it's it's a reason that's often cited. So this surveillance technology can easily um, be used um, to multiply the operations of police departments to unimaginable levels, well beyond what they could have done, even if they were fully staffed by human being police officers um, who are within a department. And so this can, you know, really expand the level of policing a department is doing. And again, it, it can be an expenditure of resources that doesn't serve the communities um, that should be served, but instead leads to a cycle of, of incarceration. And so I think that there just there is such a, a significant worry with the way that surveillance technology is used. And then, it, you know, it really can't replace an individual person because there is still a need to review everything that um, surveillance technologies are are sharing with departments, et cetera. And skipping that step can lead to oversights or problems with how the technology is really being deployed. While it may be purposeful and it may have its purpose to be able to fill out certain reports a little quicker, it also, in my again, in my opinion, it deteriorates the relationship that we want to so desperately have with our community. We've talked a lot about how police departments are implementing new technology, but if it's helping law enforcement, crimes are certainly being committed using those same tools. In August, the Dallas City Council agreed to pay $8.5 million in expenses related to a ransomware attack, according to KRLD's media partner, NBC5. And last fall, Dallas County was also hit with an attack. Cybercrime is running rampant, and, you know, it, it just takes one person to fall victim to it. And if they score, and they don't care if they, they get $500 from you or $15,000 from you, a score is a score for them. And so... But once you fall victim to that, then it's really difficult for us to be able to resolve that crime because most of those, honestly, are not local criminals. They're they're calling and they're they're scamming you from another country, and it's very difficult to track that money back. One of the biggest issues that we have is where is the person located? 
They may be located in a completely different country that's outside of our abilities to even go after. And what we do is we take, we, we actually have a digital forensics lab in, in our department, one of the few that, that do, does. And one of the reasons we do that is if, if there is evidence that comes through, we can have our folks analyze that quickly to see what it is, what, what it is can we figure out who the person is, are they local, uh, who is this person. While not everyone agrees on how to best use these tools, there's no disagreement when it comes to this. They're here to stay, and they're going to continue to evolve. Where we're going to go in the next five to ten years on technology is, is truly incredible. I anticipate a lot more. Uh, every day that I come to work, it seems like there's something new out there. I mean, they literally are, are right now trying to sell me drones that will break through a window and be able to go through and be inside of a house and you're outside of the house and you can see everything. You'll be able to talk to the suspect. And it, and it is just, that technology is just throughout police work. And, uh, and quite frankly, it's throughout, it's throughout all of our industries, but through, through police work, for us, it is exceptional. And it's also very expensive. So then it becomes an issue, okay, what, what do we think will give us the best bang for our, our buck as far as giving the service to our citizens that they deserve? And we can always have this like specter of the potential threat um, you know, something could go wrong. And, and in that situation, we may think that it's better to have all of the possible tools and all of the information that we could possibly have at our disposal to learn more about an incident. But what we're losing in that process is our freedom to go about our daily lives without having the police know those de intimate details about ourselves. And then also, our I mean, just our basic Fourth Amendment protections that the Constitution gives us too, that allows us to be free from warrantless surveillance that provides that basic information. I'm Chris Blake at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas-Fort Worth. Thanks for joining me for Texas Wants to Know. If you like the show, please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I wrote, produced, and edited this episode with editorial support from Cooper Mall and original music by Michael Eisenstein. Odyssey's managing producer for National News Podcasts is Myron Kaplan. <laughs>